Hey, this is Samantha Lishak with Absolute EHS, and I am here today again with Dr. Phoebe Lostro. Hey, Phoebe, how are you? Good morning. I'm fine. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for coming back. It's my pleasure. Um, so if you don't mind, for those who don't know who you are, would you be able to give us a quick uh, summary of your credentials and why you're so awesome? <laughs> I don't know about so awesome, but um, I'm a microbiology and genetics professor at Colorado College. Uh, my PhD is in microbiology and molecular genetics, and I often teach about infectious disease. And I just wrote a, well, a good selling uh, virology textbook about the molecular and cellular biology of viruses. Um, and I also have been working at the National Science Foundation, where I administer grants, including grants that are about addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. And that book came out a few months before COVID-19. Yeah, eerie, like six months before COVID, I, my book came out. So strange coincidence. We'll, we'll just call it a coincidence. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I really hope people will use it because I think that um, undergraduates and graduate students both are really interested in viruses right now. So we should run with that and you know feed their interests and see what happens in the next generation of scientists. Yeah, that's true. So last time we spoke, we one of the big things we talked about is how the vaccines work, but also about how these viruses mutate. Now we're in April 2021, um, and B117 is officially the dominant strain in America. Um, Brazil is pretty much overrun with the Brazilian strain. Uh, I think a bunch of countries are shutting down. Michigan is having all sorts of outbreaks in their school system with the kids. And um, as we were starting to talk about before we started recording, I know Oregon has a mandate that kids go back to school in person. So there's a lot to cover. I think I'm just going to let you run with uh, whatever you need to say. You've been doing these amazing <laughs> summaries um, in El Paso County in Colorado, um, and you've been very accurately predicting the trends. Yeah, I mean, the way that I predict the trends is to make the assumption that human behavior is staying the same and virus behavior is staying the same. So what has been happening will continue to happen unless one of those things changes. And it turns out that's pretty accurate for three or four weeks out. Um, but as you mentioned, with the emergence of the B117 strain in the United States, as well as other variants, the virus is changing. Um, and that is concerning because we have to study the virus to know how it's going to behave when it mutates. And yet it's mutating faster than we can really get all of the studies done. So it's a concerning position to be in that. That B117 variant is more transmissible. Um, so it's easier to pass it from one person to the next. And it also seems to make younger people more sick than the ancestral strain did. And it might even be infecting younger people um, more than the ancestral strain, although that's harder to sort out because 70 year olds have been vaccinated in a lot of places in the United States and in the UK and where people are doing these kinds of studies. So um, we're still, the, the jury's still out, but it, it does seem to be putting more 20 and 30 year old people in the hospital than the ancestral strain did. So that's actually a, a good thing for us to clarify. We're talking about younger people with B117 for caregivers and people in their 20s and 30s. When we say younger, I know I automatically think of kids under the age of five, but we're also learning that um, the ancestral strain was affecting kids under the age of nine. And now we've got how um, pharmaceutical companies are breaking down age ranges with under 12 and under 16. So when we're saying B117 is affecting younger children, younger population, what ages are we actually seeing this effect? 
Well, I think we're seeing it in um, 12 to 50 year olds, and I have less knowledge of what's happening with the 11 years old and younger set, um, but definitely in teens and definitely in young adults. <laughs> I wish I were a young adult at the age of 49, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I get that. Um, okay, so and then you mentioned um, our, our 70 plus population being vaccinated. So we should probably talk about this is mostly I would guess boomers would be the appropriate age, right? Boomers and uh, the great generation, the great generation. Um, we, so we have a lot of grandparents and parents who are eager to see family members, which brings us to kind of to two different questions. One is how how susceptible is someone who's been vaccinated? How are, uh, what's the likelihood of them actually getting COVID? And the, the million dollar question, what is the likelihood of them being able to transmit it to somebody else? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Somebody's gonna make a million dollars when they answer it. I don't think the data are in, but there are strong suggestions that it is unlikely that someone who's been completely vaccinated with the two shot RNA vaccines or with the Johnson and Johnson can catch COVID a second time or, or can catch COVID at all and that they can transmit it. Both of those things seem to be very unlikely for vaccinated people given the strains that are circulating now, but we're kind of setting up a giant evolutionary experiment where we've got globally distributed virus and we have um, certain countries have vaccinated every as many people as they can who are over the age of 60 or 70. And that leaves global populations where there are no vaccines and younger people available for the virus to replicate. So if it's possible for the virus to get a random mutation that just so happens to make it easier for it to replicate in younger people, that is what's probably going to happen. Now, I don't know if the virus has that capacity, but I know that it's would be a good idea to limit the virus's evolutionary potential by controlling its replication so that we don't find that out. So we've been talking a lot about replication, actually both times that we chatted. Um, given that the vaccine makes it look unlikely that someone would be able to transmit the virus, how concerned are you with the vaccinated population being part of the root cause of this mutation? Ah, uh, well, <clears throat> I think most of the vaccinated population is not a danger to the unvaccinated population. Um, and I think that it would be pretty safe, say, for grandparents to meet with their grandkids outdoors. You know, spring is coming, so let's exploit fresh air <laughs> and get together over a picnic rather than uh, in inside an ice cream shop. Pick up the ice cream and take it outside and eat it, right? So and that's really out of an abundance of caution is what I would say. Um, so I think the big danger is more that the unvaccinated population is going to continue to be infected, perhaps more than ever because of these variants that transmit more, and that's going to give the virus more opportunity to mutate worse properties. So uh, just to, I want to finish up with the kids, then there's some like global implications yeah. we should probably talk about. Um, so, all right, we're saying, uh, say, for the most part, the boomer generation, boomers and older, are vaccinated. They've had two weeks out of their two dose, or they've had uh, the 28 days after their one shot, which, mm -hmm. oh, we should talk about that too, actually. Mm -hmm. The CDC says two weeks after your either single dose or your second dose, but the Johnson & Johnson website themselves say that their single dose vaccination is not as effective as it's going to be until 28 days after that single dose. Do you 
have any ideas why there's that discrepancy? Well, I think there's that discrepancy because with any medical condition or procedure, there's a variety of opinions and some people are more risk averse and some people are more risk tolerant. And it depends on whether the doctor you're talking to is more risk averse or risk tolerant. Um, considering everything that we have been through, I think waiting two more weeks is not such a hard ask and that it is obviously safer to wait two more weeks. If you must, 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 must travel, um, you know, it's better to be vaccinated before you travel, even if you haven't waited long enough than to not get vaccinated at all. So that's what, that's how I would explain it. Okay. Um, so we talked about that group. Then we've got our, let's just say twenties to third, or actually I guess Gen X, which they're probably fifties for the most part <laughs> that around there. Uh, I, I, I always I'm, forgotten. It's okay. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm real, I've got some Gen Xers that I'm close to. So, um, so Gen X, uh, they tend to comp uh, make most of our civil servants, actually. Um, so I think a lot of them are frontline healthcare. Um, yeah, I mean, Gen X, I would say that um, in El Paso County, it isn't a large proportion of people over the age of 50 who have been vaccinated yet, unless you get up to 65 and older, and then it's a larger proportion of them. So there's kind of this uh, middle age time um, when people are trying to get their vaccines and their appointments, but they haven't necessarily gotten their appointments yet. So I, I think we're, we're making progress on that, but now we're going to have all age groups competing together to get the shot. So it's going to slow the rate of uptake by um, the 50 year olds, just because the 50 year olds are going to be competing with the 25 year olds. Um, but I, I think we're doing a good job with the vaccine rollout, except for the one snafu with the Johnson and Johnson. But otherwise, we have really been doing a good job figuring out mass vaccination sites and keeping everyone safe during those vaccinations. So I think we're going to keep at our 3 million doses uh, a day, uh, maybe even get to more. Okay. But our 50 plus group, um, <laughs> no, it's good. Um, that, that 50 plus group, they were considered very susceptible to the ancestral strain. Mm -hmm. I imagine that still holds true, if not more susceptible to B117. Yeah. I mean, everybody's more susceptible to B117. And then um, the variant that was in South Africa that escaped the AstraZeneca vaccination protocol um, we might, every people vaccinated may well be more susceptible to that strain as well. Uh, I don't have a lot of data about that, so I'm not hundred percent sure, but if it can escape the vaccine that was designed based on the ancestral strain, it probably can infect people who've been vaccinated with a vaccine based on the, and the ancestral. Uh, yeah. Strain. I haven't found a ton of data on that either. It's pretty, I don't know if there's just not a lot of data or if they're trying to keep it under wraps until they come. Oh, out. I would guess it's not keeping it under wraps. I would guess that um, the South African health establishment is very good at tracing and um, sequencing because of all their experience with HIV, but I have a feeling they're very busy. And so probably writing academic papers is not at the top of the list of priorities for the people who have the expertise to be diagnosing and treating as well. Fair enough. Nobody likes writing papers, right? Nobody likes writing papers now. Oh. <laughs> All right. So our, our 20 to 30 group, which previously was kind of low risk, we're, we're now more at risk with B117. Yeah, there's more risk with this B117, more risk of getting um, a higher viral load in your body and more risk of being sick enough that you would have to go to the hospital. So this is not the time to let down your guard if you are in that unvaccinated 20 to 40 year old group. Okay. And then the, again, the part that I really want to get to, we'll do, I guess, by, by school age. So 
high school, I was telling you, I've been working with a teacher who works in a high school, and there's this really interesting uh, concern that I have that I'm not really seeing be discussed, where high schoolers, you've got basically your juniors and seniors will be vaccinated or vaccine eligible because Pfizer is okay for 16 and up, but your freshman and sophomore group will not be eligible. Do you foresee any kind of, I guess, concerns with basically half of a high school being vaccinated and half not being vaccinated? It's not a good situation, obviously. Um, and I don't remember that, uh, ninth graders and 10th graders were especially more or less into hygiene than 11th graders and 12th graders. So, you know, there's similarities in behavior and it's just because the 16 and 17 year olds are eligible doesn't mean that they will have been able to get a shot. I mean, the shots are still in um, scarce supply. So I am concerned about that. We can see that, um, well, in Michigan, they think that youth sports is one of the driving factors. And with this B117, they think that kids, including teenagers and younger kids are contracting it at youth sports or at school and bringing it home and infecting the whole family. So this is just really not the time to let our guard down, even though we are all so eager to celebrate our liberation from this horrible virus. We're so happy for grandma and grandpa, but we grandma and grandpa will not be happy if we all get sick. So to really keep grandma and grandpa happy, we still need to be working on limiting the spread of this virus. And it's, uh, really it's evolutionary capacity. I do think that we will see emergency use authorization for 12 year olds and up um, for some of the vaccines very soon, because that is a huge deal. We can't really vaccinate 75% of the US population without vaccinating at least some people who are in those early teenage years. So that brings us to the middle school population. Um, I'm gonna make a generalization, which you should correct if it's wrong, that high schoolers, for the most part, those uh, ACE2 receptors are pretty much adult formed, which is why they'd be susceptible. Generally speaking in the middle school population, do we have a similar concern on how many receptors they have for this virus? Or are they under, are they less developed? Yeah, so so the data is not, it's not, um... You can't divide people into discrete groups based on how much ACE2 receptor they have in their bodies, but there's a gradation of adults have a lot and infants have very little. And then over the course of childhood development, there's older children have more and younger children have less. So that's absolutely the case that the middle schoolers have fewer of those receptors um, than, the, uh, than the older students or than adults do. Okay. And then that brings us to, I guess, elementary to daycare style. So... Yeah, I guess that's yeah. under nine. For the yeah, most under nine. And so they don't seem to have very many of those ACE2 receptors, but we are seeing um, infections in that age group increase uh, all around the world as uh, older populations have gotten vaccinated. So we don't know whether the increase in the younger people is because vaccination has taken the old people out of the virus pool um, or whether the variants are better able to replicate in younger people than the ancestral strain or a combination of both. It could easily be a combination of both. And also we're in a situation now where the variants are evolving in geographic locations that are separate from other geographic locations where it's also um, evolving. And so it is possible that we're gonna see outbreaks in some places that infect kids better and outbreaks in other places that don't. Um, we really are 
uh, in kind of a chaotic situation for viral evolution. I feel strongly that we really need um, a comprehensive national plan for sequencing the virus. Um, and I think that there is such a plan and yet I'm not seeing regular news reports explaining exactly where the variants are and what the variants are. So I think we need a more robust um, communication plan to let all of us know what's going on with the variants in the United States. How much of that kind of lack of media coverage on these specifics do you think just has to do with the fact that a lot of people don't understand it? Like it took us about a year as a, as a society to get our head around, oh, hey, we should all wash our hands in public yeah. hygiene. Right. Um, do, you, do you think that's part of it or is it COVID fatigue? Or I, I have to say, I noticed that the coverage of, co of coronavirus um, or coronaviruses in general just plummeted when the administration changed. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know I if any of that's related. But. Yeah. I mean, I think people are getting sick of it for sure. Um, and I think, I think science communicators could reasonably have a little bit of frustration at this point at how difficult it has been to get accurate information out and to have it be believed. So I think that we're all weary of COVID, but I think those of us, who are trying to communicate about COVID and teach people about it are also a little bit weary because we, we really kind of got beat up in the last administration. And, you know, public health uh, officials were getting death threats all over the country for ordering masks to be worn and for ordering shutdowns. And so there's still some kind of champions out there trying to explain what a mutant virus is and why we call it a variant and why it matters. Um, and they have kind of a loyal following of people who read their stuff or who watch their stuff. But I think that the rest of the public is really eager to move on and just think that if grandma and grandpa are okay, let's just get on with our life. So we're kind of in a tender moment, really. So what would you tell the parents with small children who now have grandparents vaccinated um, or multifamily households. Cause you know, a lot of, again, we're talking about boomers and uh, Gen X there, there are a lot of kids involved and a lot of them are in different households now. Yeah. Any, that's any a really words good of advice. Point. Well, I mean, I think I said it earlier, which is that I think the safest thing to do is to gather outside and give hugs outside and uh, you know, don't spend a ton of time with the kids sitting on your lap, reading stories, right in each other's faces, but get together, you know, it's, these, all of life is about risk tolerance. You know, when you get in the car and decide to drive from Denver to Nebraska, you might get in a car accident. And we know what that rate is. Uh, you know, people have measured that very carefully. Insurance providers have measured that very carefully. And yet when I get in my car to drive to go see my family in Nebraska, I'm not immediately thinking, oh, there's a one in X chance. Do I really want to do this today? <laughs> because driving is a routine part of our lives. And I think people need to be doing similar risk assessments with um, COVID-19. And it's safer if you still keep your bubble, but maybe the bubble can include grandparents now, right? Great. Um, okay, so we've got a lot of international news too. So mm. we, we kind of touched upon Brazil, which I think their hospital systems are still completely overrun, similar to what was happening in California earlier. Yeah, I think um, that's right. Which, uh, frankly, right after California getting overwhelmed, they had two of their own strains. They have the Northern right. California, I think it's a Bay Area strain and a Southern California strain. Right. Um, Brazil already has a pretty famous strain. Do you think we've got another one in store coming out of there? Oh, 
out of everywhere for sure. Uh, just yesterday, I was reading about a variant that's arisen in India that has two mutations that are each associated with uh, separate strains elsewhere that are more transmissible, and now they're combined into one virus. So that's a more concerning situation, probably more than double concern, more like exponentially more concerning, right? Because uh, it's the effect is probably more than additive. It's probably uh, vaccine escape and immune escape as well as more transmissible. Um, so we really need to not let this virus replicate so much anywhere. Um, my first concern in anywhere in the world is always for the health of the people who are being affected. I really don't like the narrative argument that um, we should try to stop the virus everywhere because that's the only way to save ourselves. Like, no, first of all, we care about human beings who are getting infected in India and Brazil and everywhere else. But as a secondary fact, it is the case that it helps everyone in the whole world if we control the evolution of this virus and stop it from replicating. So I think we are going to be seeing some more affordable vaccines come online and get distributed, but it is going to take a massive coordinated effort and uh, it's going to be it's going to be kind of amazing to see. I wonder if the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation will get involved as they have with things like malaria and HIV, um, because the WHO is doesn't do this kind of thing that routinely anymore. Um, and I'm sure they're going to step up and do what they can. And I bet that the US CDC is going to step up and try to be globally active in a way like they were prior to the Trump administration. And then lots of other countries also have um, you know, public health units that help with all this vaccination. And, you know, there's still a global vac vaccination campaign to eradicate polio. So that's all still going on. So we do know how to do these things better than maybe we once did. Um, but it's just going to take a giant amount of money and a giant amount of effort. Right. Um, so there, there are a bunch of arguments about um, the United States having a surplus of vaccine and many countries not having any at all. Um, and there's a bit of a debate amongst I guess more intellectuals, I'm not sure if they're people in authority, um, whether it makes more sense to get the states completely vaccinated and then give surplus to different countries, or I believe Biden's going to send five or 10% up to Canada of, I, I want to say it's AstraZeneca, um, which I know it hit me as, wait, we, we determined that a lot of people don't like AstraZeneca. And so what we're going to send it off now, and that's what's uh -huh. helpful. Like, Right. Um, what are your thoughts on more of a, I guess, uh, equal distribution globally versus getting one country, concentrating on a country at a time? Yeah, I wish I knew whether it was the same as the situation on the airplane when they tell you to put on your own mask before you help others. And I'm not sure it really is a parallel situation. I, I think there should be a global effort to vaccinate all healthcare workers everywhere probably before we continue to vaccinate people who are in their 20s and 30s in wealthy countries where they're not going to run out of oxygen and they're going to be able to get good health care. Um, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. So it kind of doesn't matter whether I think that's a good idea or not. What's going to happen is that the wealthy countries are going to be vaccinated. We're going to get to a point where everyone who wants the vaccine for the most part has had it. Now, I don't know what proportion that's going to turn out to be, probably not 75%, but we can dream. And then after that, the vaccines will start to go to global locations. I know that there are scientists who have intentionally sampled, you know, used vials of vaccine and sequenced the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, and then made that information publicly available. So there, so the information on what proteins need to go in a vaccine 
is absolutely available. So I assume that there's going to be, uh, you know, Indian manufacturer of a vaccine, whether they're using the Soviet, not the Soviet, the Russian vaccine or the Chinese vaccine, or one of the West vaccines or a vaccine of their own devising that's based on these pro protein structures or even better protein structures that someone's figured out. India is a pharmaceutical powerhouse. Mm -hmm. So I have hope for that. Um, but it's just time. It's just time. And the virus replicates, uh, you know, uh, it goes from one to 10,000 in 24 hours and human beings don't, <laughs> we don't go, we don't go from one to 10,000 vaccine doses in a day uh, for, for, uh, I mean, we are manufacturing them as fast as I think we can, but we're also kind of seeing this intersect with a low point in microbiology. Um, you know, there was a period of time in the eighties and nineties, um, I, that's not true. I'm going to say seventies and eighties before HIV AIDS became as widely recognized. And the, the, during that period of time, the thinking was we've got microbiology under control. We have moved on to more sophisticated diseases, killing us instead of infections. So we don't need a lot of research into new antibiotics. We don't need a lot of research into new vaccines because we've, we're, we've taken care of everything that's really scary. And so um, we should invest our health dollars, our health research dollars in cancer and heart disease and diabetes and not in infectious disease. And so what we're seeing is that our infrastructure for manufacturing antibiotics and researching them and our infrastructure for manufacturing uh, vaccines and researching them is really has not caught up with the need that the world has. There are so many cancer treatments, uh, arthritis treatments, autoimmune treatments, and vaccines that are all based on making the human body make antibodies or giving someone antibodies straight out as a, as a treatment. And the way to manufacture those is different from how you manufacture a widget or how you manufacture aspirin. And our infrastructure is not up to that task yet. And we also need a greater workforce that is able to do that kind of work. I actually think it could really revitalize some parts of the US economy. There are plenty of places in this country where people have a good education and there's reasonable transportation infrastructure. And we just need to have more pharmaceutical manufacturing that is for these new kind of pharmaceuticals. With the, you know, you're talking about pharmaceutical manufacturing. We had, um, at least in, in my world, because they deal with PPE and yeah. glassware and stuff, there were no vials for right. testing. Like there were there were no caps. There, there are these little just logistical supply chain issues. Um, do you think that's at all? Like, do you, do you think we've kind of figured it out at this point or do you think that's part of why we're not? Um... No, I think we are figuring it out as we go. Um, but we need, when we come out of this crisis, we need to make a long-term plan so that we're ready. Um, and so that we can continue to make the benefits of 21st century health interventions available to more and more people. Um, I know that there are clinical trials that have been approved to move forward with some of these new biological type of drugs, but they're not moving forward, not because they haven't been approved, but because we don't have the manufacturing capacity to make them fast enough. And I would guess that with COVID, what we're seeing is a lot of that manufacturing capacity is now being used for SARS coronavirus 2 um, treatments and uh, vaccines. So we're kind of maxed out at our capacity and we might want to rethink whether having more capacity would be a good and prudent move. I think it would. So speaking of this bottleneck um, and CDC guidelines and everything else, um, Johnson and Johnson and Moderna uh, and up until recently Pfizer were only determined to be, we'll say at the maximum efficacy for three months. 
beginning two weeks after your second dose or two (laughs) weeks after the one dose, depending on which one you get. Pfizer, I believe was a week or two ago, did release that they're, um, they're seeing that we're good for six months if you've had Pfizer. Moderna has not released any similar statement, um, although Moderna was a little bit behind Pfizer. So I imagine something is going to come. Um, what do you think? So are we looking at booster shots after mm-hmm. six months to those people who have had Pfizer or after three months with Johnson Johnson and Moderna, are we all supposed to, you know, shut back down and stop visiting <sighs> grandma and grandpa? You know- I mean, this is exactly the level of unknowingness that we have right now. There's no way for us to know that because very few people have been vaccinated for six months at this point, you know? Um, So we are going to know so much more about that in real time, but it feels like it's still too slow to help us make decisions like whether to have a family reunion this summer, but it's just the fact of the matter that this is how it is. The the data are coming in at the same time that we're all just trying to get by. Do I think we'll need a booster shot? I think we probably will. I mean, coronaviruses change quite a bit and we're seeing, uh, we're seeing for this coronavirus in particular, we're obviously seeing a lot of evolutionary change. Do I think we'll need it at six months? I have no idea. And I don't even, I cannot even imagine how to predict that at this point. It's just one of those like stay tuned uh, situations. Yeah. I know my family's big on planning like way out in advance. Yeah. But I, according to the three month thing, I'm supposed to expire at the end of May. So like, what are you supposed to do? In I'm going to expire in May. Um, but you know, with the rush, you're right. You know, a lot of people are still trying to get vaccines. Um, I happen to live in a County that I think is number two, most vaccinated in New York state. Um, but people are having a lot of trouble still, even out here getting what they want. Um, or if they want to get a certain one and then they run out or whatever the case may be. Um, so it's just, it's so hard to imagine that we're already talking about booster shots when most of the population hasn't even had an opportunity to get their first vaccination. Yeah. So let's do first things first and focus on getting those first vaccinations out. And I guarantee you that there are people at Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson who are thinking about booster shots already. So I'd say for right now, let's just think about getting everybody vaccinated and let the companies think about the booster shots. And if we really need a booster shot, I believe that Anthony Fauci will let us know that as soon as he possibly has that information. (laughs) And you know, they will be the people who know first. So it'd be the Fauci second ouchie. Yeah, the Fauci second ouchie, right? Yeah. Um, so speaking of Pfizer, Moderna, planning ahead, the uh, 12, I believe it's 12 to 16 uh, experimental Yay. trials. The trials are, have started. Yep. They've been going for a little bit. It yep. looks pretty positive from what I've been hearing. Other than changing dose and everything else, can you explain a little bit about what goes into these uh, children's trials? Well, sure. So any trial for a vaccine has a very high safety standard to meet because you are administering a pharmaceutical to someone who's already healthy. So uh, the the risk profile that you're willing to tolerate is lower than when you're giving a drug to someone who's already sick and the drug is going to uh, make them better. And so uh, the trials are designed to really uncover the safety in a, in a very thorough way. Uh, As far as I've heard in the news, the 12 to 16 year old trials have been safe, have shown safety and have shown inducing antibodies. But the caveat is that those are all news releases from the companies themselves, which of course have an interest in making sure that everyone thinks that their vaccine is great. So the data aren't out yet, but um, because 16 and 17 year olds have done well with the Pfizer, I think it's likely that the 12 to 16 year olds will do well with Pfizer and probably with Moderna as well. Um, And so I think that we're going to see 
we're going to see access, children having access to these vaccines soon. Because I think that emergency use authorization is, they've probably filed it, you know, and we're just yeah. waiting to see, have it go through the regulatory process. But it does take longer for regulators to decide what to do about a vaccine that will be given to young people. Because you're always thinking about, you know, if, if someone is injured, how many of their healthy life years are you impacting? And obviously, if it's a 13-year-old, that's a lot more than if it's a 70-year-old. Right. And I do believe they injected their first six-month-old about a wow. week ago. Wow. Um, so there's not a ton of data out there yet, but I know some parents are eager to yes. get, their, get their kids uh, vaccinated any way, yes. shape or form. And yes. Um, that- and, you know, that might help us with uptake in the whole population as well, because you could imagine a family a family oriented clinic where the whole family goes in and gets vaccinated, which you talked about last time as, you know, vaccinating households. Mm-hmm. That's, that still was a great idea. <laughs> Thanks. What's happening, but maybe when more ages are approved, it'll, it'll catch on. So uh, I know we, we talked about school a little bit already, but in terms of those, let's say under high school groups, because mm-hmm. the, the high schools will be covered, as you mentioned, the emergency use authorization is probably filed already for those, for that age group. When it comes to, daycare elementary and I guess part of middle uh, and what we're seeing with Michigan. Do you think that school should be reopening right now? I think that the epidemic is uh, different in different localities. And I still think that it is a good idea to open schools when uh, transmission locally is low and not when local transmission is high. Now, what is low and what is high? That's a judgment call that uh, different states are making differently. I wish that the CDC was a little more forward in um, being clear to define that rather than leave it up to the states, because I think there are some states that are more risk averse than others, and it would be good to have some agreement on what is low community transmission versus high community transmission. But I really think that because of how the virus works and that it's spread by air, these decisions have to be made on a local level. Okay. So, I mean, in that same vein, some, I'm hearing this less and less from people, but there's still some extremists who are saying, ah, there are like all these new strains. Um, realistically, I think only 20% of the country is, is vaccinated. Should we still consider a month long shutdown? Like what Italy did, uh, over a year ago? Well, I mean, we're going to see, we're going to see how this is going to go because now that B117 has taken over, um, we could see uh, an in, a rapid increase in cases. And we're already at a level of cases in many places in the United States that's higher than the summer before. Um, so I think the jury's out. I am, um, I'm uncomfortable with the level of opening up that we have here in my community in Colorado Springs. Uh, when you drive around, you see that restaurants, for example, look quite full. Um, So uh, people are supposed to be following certain guidelines about capacity, and I'm sure that some are, but just from looking at the cars parked and how crowded it looks on the inside, there are, there's some laxity in how some of these rules are being enforced and uh, the B117 is here. So those things combined make me think that in Colorado Springs, anyway, we are about to see uh, an exponential increase in cases just like we, uh, just like we have before. Uh, we also have uh, wastewater 
coronavirus genome detection in Colorado, and we're seeing a massive upswing in wastewater virus counts. And uh, in the past, when that has happened, uh, before cases have risen, what you see is two weeks later, the cases really go up. So, uh, and our percent positivity for testing is above 7.5%. So I think that in Colorado Springs in particular, we are on the verge of seeing another upswing in cases. It won't be among 70 year olds. It'll be among 50 year olds and 40 year olds and 30 year olds and teenagers. And I think the jury is out about, you know, the if other countries have the experience that those people are getting sicker with B117 <laughs> than they would have with the ancestral strain. Now, I can't find any information on who is sampling locally and sequencing and whether there is some coordinated plan to sequence in Colorado Springs or other counties in Colorado. But if the national data apply to us, which seems likely, then we're going to see an increase in cases among younger people, and it's going to go up fast. It I don't almost, know what will happen with the hospitals, but it's going to go up fast. And our hospital numbers are rising too. It is really a delicate time. So you're anticipating a, the fourth wave that oh, yeah, a lot of sure. public health officials are divided sure. on. Yeah. Um, it almost sounds like one of the indicators would be if we see 70 year olds getting infected again, that's when we know oh. we're early in it. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. I hope that doesn't start to happen again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you mentioned testing. Uh, I think nationally we're seeing actually a drop in testing mostly because people are getting vaccinated. I know in, in my opinion with behavioral safety, it seems to be, oh, there's a vaccine now. So we're all safe automatically, even though we're not right. vaccinated. Right. Um, it's magic. Any, uh, if you are vaccinated, should you still be getting tested? That's a good question. So um, I haven't read a lot about that. So I probably, I will, I can't say, I don't know about that, but I will say that we are getting access to home testing kits. And so for families who do want to get together, one idea for people who refuse to be vaccinated or who can't be vaccinated for whatever reason would be to use one of those home test kits before you have your outdoor family barbecue reunion. Okay. Um, all right. And then I've got one more note here. Let's talk about the flu because nobody's talking about the flu. It was no flu. It was was so exciting. It's almost like we should have been washing our hands and wearing masks every winter all along. What an idea. Shocking. I know. Um, Do you think that viruses such as the flu that already mutate, um, do you think that we are, we could potentially eradicate something like that if we keep doing things the way we're doing? Or do you think it's all like flu wise flu season or things going to go back to normal as things reopen? Well, flu is not, we're never going to eradicate flu because it lives in wild bird populations. And we're probably never going to manage to vaccinate all birds on the planet unless we kill all the birds on the planet, which I guess seems more likely. <laughs> We'd have so many bugs. We can't do that. Um, but I think that we are going to see a greater investment in pressing for a universal flu vaccine that doesn't need um, to have booster shots so often. And I think that this new mRNA based technology is going to push vaccines forward quite a bit. And I think that people are going to be interested in investing in this kind of uh, medicine moving forward. I think that's going to be one of the impacts of the pandemic. So you know, I sure hope we'll go back to wearing our masks. Uh, and I, I hope, here's what I hope. When you have a cold, instead of taking DayQuil and coming into the office, take the DayQuil and stay home. (laughs) So, you know, that would be a massive cultural change in the United States. I mean, that's not what we do. We have, we have the so-called sniffles or cough and we go to work or school just like always. 
maybe we shouldn't do that. <laughs> maybe well, we need a different ethic of care. That's but true. Then what do you do? Somebody has to stay home and take care of these sick people. So, okay. Are we going to start paying women to take care of people? Like, you know, sign oh, yeah. us up, right? I call yeah. it the, the $300 mom salary, the right. $300 a month stimulus, which, oh right. my gosh, makes me feel so good. <laughs> <laughs> you're worth, you're worth 0.01 cents per hour. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but I know in places, and I know we're getting into policy now, which probably isn't the topic of conversation, but in places like Colorado, there's um, uh, the the time, the, what is it? PT, PTO, part-time off. And it's yeah. either sick or vacation. And if you're right. sick for all those hours, you don't get vacation. Right. That's the, you know, I imagine that's the kind of thing that you're talking about when it comes to policy Oh yeah, change. for sure. I mean, we need reform of all these kinds of employment practices, um, which, um, you know, have gotten worse and worse since the, since the Nixon Reagan years, the, the Roosevelt uh, refer- reforms <laughs> have been eroded. And I think we need that level of reformation um, moving forward, especially related to uh, sick leave, paid leave, paid leave to take care of people, paid leave to have a baby, a guarantee that your job will still be there when you come back after spending six months at home, not two weeks with your baby. I mean, we just really need to move forward on addressing the reality of the 21st century, which is that many families have adults who are doing caregiving and who are earning money both. And we need that if we want to continue to have children and wives as a society, then maybe we should take care of that situation better. So I have hope that we are recognizing more how much better it would be for everybody if we had some collective decisions like, you know what, people need enough paid sick days so that they can stay home and not give the rest of us strep throat. It's just logical. That would be great. That would be great. Yeah. Um, so speaking of kind of diseases we all know and love or have come to come to terms with here, I guess this was going to be more of a theoretical with all of this work toward vaccination against a coronavirus and knowing that the common cold is a coronavirus. We know about SARS, we know about MERS, but the common cold in particular, do you think we're going to have a side effect from these vaccinations where we might diminish the common cold? Oh, that's a great question. So I don't know the answer off the top of my head, but I'm sure that people have studied um, the serum of people who've gotten the common cold or this SARS coronavirus and examined whether or not it cross-reacts with uh, other coronaviruses. So that is probably a known uh, fact. It's just that I don't know it. I don't know how much cross protection there is, probably not against the spike, but maybe against some of the proteins that evolve more slowly. Yeah. And, you know, the common cold is caused by coronaviruses some of the time, but most of the time it's caused by other viruses. There's a lot of viruses that cause the common cold. Um, And and again, like, well, why can't we have vaccines against them? Well, sometimes there's a, there's a biological reason. They're so variable that we can't make a vaccine that would catch up with them. But other times it just hasn't been an important enough problem to solve. I'm hoping that we're recognizing more how, um, morbidity and illness have a big impact on our economy. And maybe we will invest in some uh, vaccine technologies to address some common infections that aren't so serious, but they are a serious impact. If you start thinking about how mom has to stay home, taking care of the kid who is, who is sick. So why don't we have, why don't we want to have vaccines developed against those things that make the kids sick in the first place? I think we do. So I'm hoping there will be a 
a renaissance of microbiology to address these things moving forward. Vaccines for everybody. Vaccines for everything. I mean, wouldn't it be cool if you could have a vaccine against cavities? You know, it's, oh, a, it's one so strain great. of streptococcus mutans that causes most cavities. So give me that vaccine. And uh, there, you know, a vaccine against strep throat, a vaccine against gonorrhea, a vaccine against chlamydia, these herpes, we don't have a herpes vaccine. Everybody has one herpes virus in their body at least. So, you know, but these problems have not been considered important enough to solve. And maybe now we're getting at the point where they're going to be considered important. Wow. Yeah. I would love the anti-cavity vaccine. Me too. Sign me up. <laughs> Um, another thing that came up a lot in the beginning of all this, which seems to have fallen to the wayside is the idea that there might be a genetic component to who gets sick or who is asymptomatic or who ends up in the hospital. Has that largely been abandoned or is there, is there anything that we should know about that? Yeah, that's a great question. I have not seen much in the science news about that, which suggests to me that, um, any findings that, uh, there are do not have a big impact on uh, on the course of infection or on the likelihood of infection. Because if there were a genetic variation in humans that did have a big impact, I think that would be big news. And people study human variations all the time. So someone has been studying this problem, I'm certain, um, but it hasn't risen to the top of cell science and nature. So probably whatever effect people are finding, it's not a large effect. Okay. Yeah. I know I personally had some concerns about if they kept going down that rabbit hole, we'd fall into a eugenics issue. Oh, well, we already did. I mean, as soon as you say, oh, well, we should just open back up and never mind if those, that particular population is more at risk and is more likely to die. I mean, that's a eugenic choice right there on yeah. its own. Okay. Um, well, I just threw a bunch of questions at you. Is there anything <laughs> you've been your, again, your summaries are just so fantastic and on point. Um, is there Thank anything you. you've been uh, being asked or things that you really want to make sure get out there. Uh, I, I just really want to talk about how, um, the only way to stop viral evolution is to stop viral replication. So that's why we need to keep taking precautions to limit replication among people who have not yet been vaccinated. It's just, I, I can't overstate how important it is. So would you say you agree with the CDC's guideline about vaccinated people can get together unmasked indoors? Yeah, I do agree with that recommendation. I think it's still safer to gather with small groups and not with large groups to have the windows open rather than closed, you know, keep using those precautions um, that help with ventil that help with ventilation and because um, that's limiting the number of people and having the windows open is a ventilation. Both of those are ventilation interventions. So, you know, keep doing that. Don't go to a super crowded bar just yet. And also, you know what, we don't turn purple as soon as we get vaccinated or as soon as we're, you know, protected. So just by looking at someone, you can't know if they have been vaccinated, no matter what age they are. And also it's an invasion of someone's privacy to ask. So I am still acting like the people in the grocery store might be infected. And I just don't know that. And so that's where my risk tolerance is at this point. Uh, if I may ask, are you vaccinated? I got my first shot and I get my next one in five days and I'm so excited. But for example, um, my, my sister and my mom and I will all have been vaccinated and it will have been two weeks after our last shots uh, in May. And we're going to get together as a family for the first time in over a year and see each other. And we probably will spend most of the time outside, um, but we will be able to go in the house, you know, not wearing masks, we think, because it'll be the three of us who've all been vaccinated. So that's our plan. 
Okay. And then when, I mean, we're just talking about the grocery stores too, and assuming nobody's vaccinated or I know I try to assume everybody has COVID unless proven. Otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, are you, are you still going to have the same precautions when you go to the grocery store? I'm keeping up all my precautions when I go to the grocery store, although I have to say that I am considering uh, single masking instead of double masking as I had been. Um, but you know, I could go back to double masking if it turns out that people can get infected by variants that are here. <laughs> so yeah, it's up in the air. There's no way to make a single decision and just say, this is what I'm going to do from here on out. You have to respond in real time to what's going on. And that's one of the things that's so wearying about this pandemic. You can't just make your one decision and go with it unless you go to something totally extreme. Like I'm just not going to worry about precautions at all, or I am just always going to wear an astronaut suit no matter where I am. But if, if you're anywhere in between, you have to update your decisions based on what's going on in the community, which means you need active active information from your community about what's going on and you have to constantly be making these decisions. It is just decision fatigue day in and day out. Yeah. And you know who makes these decisions for families? Of course we do. Women, mothers are making a lot of these decisions. So moms are having decision fatigue about all of this, I'm certain. Because who, who plans the family reunion? Who plans whether the kids go to camp or not? It's almost always mom. So moms, we love you. Keep I mean, now going. we're getting $300 we're a month. So. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you know, wow. Ooh, <laughs> I'd send you more if I could. <laughs> you know, doing these podcasts is what's been like keeping me sane. So that's yeah. been good. Um, great. Okay. So it, it almost sounds like I'm going to have to bug you in another month or two and see where things, <laughs> where things are going. If we get yeah, that that's why, wave. that's why I'm saying you have to keep making decisions in real time so that I have the opportunity to come back and talk to you again, for sure. Okay, <laughs> great. No, I really enjoy it. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to talk and it's great to see you. It's good to see you. And thanks for joining me again. Okay. Well, I'll see you next time. <laughs> Sounds good.